Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the fact that, as we just sang, we have one who is unrivaled in power, who is worthy of all of our worship. I pray that even now, Father, may we remember that um, it's not just singing that is worship, not just giving that is worship, but hearing your word and appropriating it to our lives is also worship. Help us to do that from the heart. Help us to be um, people who have soft and tender hearts, listening ears, spiritual eyes to see with reference to your word. May we be doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43 is our passage for this morning. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. This is the Word of God. Mark five twenty one. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for twelve years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, come, which translated means little girl. I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. The Lord blessed the reading and the preaching and the application of His Word. Amen? Whenever I read accounts like this one about our Lord, as we even were walking through the Gospel of Mark, I'm reminded of a, of a friend of mine that I've known for about 25 years now. He's a very well-connected, very well-known um, brother. He has a very broad ministry, very effective ministry uh, in the U.S. and especially in other parts of the world. In fact, the other day I was listening to a, a, a part of a sermon by him, and I was amazed. One of his sermons, and generally speaking, his sermons are 
uh, there's like three or four thousand hits for his sermons. And so he has this broad impact and just a, a wonderful teacher of the Word of God. But what has always encouraged me about this brother is that even over the years as he's continued to grow as far as his impact and, and all of that, he is always a man who carries himself with such humility. Um, he doesn't carry himself as one who is better than anybody else. He's very humble, very broken man before the Lord. Um, in fact, um, even though he's so busy and has so many responsibilities, whenever you see him, he always takes time for individual people. He always takes time to say hi to you, to greet you, even for a couple of minutes, even if he's busy running to do something. Um, he'll take time to ask you how you're doing, ask you how your family is doing. I love that about that brother. He's a great example of having such a, a vast ministry and yet being so personal, so relational with people. You know, that's very Christ-like, isn't it? It's very Christ-like because this is what Jesus was like. Our Lord, more than anyone else, was busy. He ministered to masses of people. Many different people came to Him, and most of whom had wrong motivations and wrong intentions for coming to our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, our Lord continually touched individual people's lives. He took the time to be with them. And that's what we have here again. Jesus is quite busy, as we've been learning from the Gospel of Mark. People are constantly around Him. He can't even walk. But the Lord is not so busy as to not make personal contact and personal impact and touch individual personal lives. And here in Mark, we've seen this over and over again. Mark is in the stage in the last couple of chapters where he has been emphasizing to us the unrivaled power of Jesus Christ. And here in the passage that we just read, that is the main point yet again. Mark takes two separate but related um, encounters, two separate accounts, and a sort of sandwich effect to show Christ's unrivaled power yet again, this time over the physical realm. And that has been his focus Jesus has, has been shown by Mark to be unrivaled in power over nature. If you remember in the calming of storm on the, uh, on the way from the western side of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side, Jesus has been shown to have unrivaled power over the spiritual realm and the fact that Jesus expulses um, a legion of demons on the eastern side of the, lake, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And now what we see in the passage that I just read is Jesus shown and his unrivaled power displayed over the physical realm, over such things like human disease and even death. But what we also see beyond that main point of showing the power and the majesty of Christ, beloved, is this, that flowing from an understanding of that power, Mark wants us to see that it, no matter who you are, and no matter how much you have f far away from the Lord you've been, you are never beyond the reach of Christ. You're never beyond the reach of Christ. But you must come to understand and acknowledge and believe and trust that He is the God-man, that He is God of very God. And that He has come to die on the cross for your sins and trust in Him, believe in Him, transfer trust from self to Jesus Christ you must come to understand that Jesus is your greatest need. And so make no mistake about it. Christ and His majestic power as the God-man is the main point Mark is making again and again and again. But Jesus is dealing very specifically with people, 
touching individual people's lives. And we have the privilege of seeing that even this morning in the way that he touches three different individual persons' lives. So in our passage this morning, I want us to see Christ's power on display as he helps three different individuals that our faith might be strengthened and our love deepened for our Savior. And I pray that that is what's happening, beloved. That as we behold the majesty of Jesus Christ and the way that he interacts with individuals and the masses here and his compassion and his power and his authority and all of these things, that your faith might be strengthened and that your love might be deepening for your Savior. I pray that that is your prayer every single week. That as you come in here and hear these messages about the, about the person and the work of Jesus, that this is what that you're drawing closer to the Lord. In each of these, Jesus is the common denominator who helps these three different kinds of people and displays his power. So I want us to see first in verses 21 through 24, Jesus and the desperate. Jesus and the desperate. Here comes a desperate woman. Yet another individual who comes in desperation to seek the help of Christ. Verse 21 tells us that as soon as Jesus and his disciples get back to the, to the other side, to the northwest shore of the, lake, of the Sea of Galilee, again, masses are waiting for him. Remember, this is after Jesus making a trip to the eastern shore where he calms the storm and displays his power over nature. And then before he even, he even hits ground on the eastern shore, there's a demoniac, a gathering demoniac, and Jesus expulses demons out of this man, 6,000 legions of, of, of demons, a legion of demons. So he shows his power over the spiritual world. And so now he gets back to the western shore with his disciples. And not only are the, are the people who, who already knew about him, they're waiting for him on the western shore. But if, as you can imagine, people in the little boats, remember the people in the little boats who travel with Jesus from the west side to the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee? People in the little boats who witness his calming of the storm, it's very likely that those people came back and they reported what happened to the western side. This leads to an unprecedented greater masses now that are waiting for Jesus Christ. All kinds of people are now looking for a miracle from Jesus. The poor and the destitute and the hungry and the afflicted and the demon-possessed. As we've seen already, all kinds of people are waiting for Jesus to help them. But no one would have expected what happens next to take place. Who surfaces from amongst this crowd to ask for Jesus' help? Notice in verse 22. One of the synagogue officials, and the synagogue official there has the idea of of ruler or leader. A synagogue ruler or leader named Jairus comes up and on seeing him falls at Jesus' feet. It's as if this is plain before your very eyes. Jairus comes up and on seeing Jesus, he falls at the feet of Jesus. Now you need to understand this. This is not just another Joe here. This is just not, not just another common person. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue, which is in addition to the temple in Jerusalem, the synagogues were the hubs for worship and for learning the law of God. Some believed, believe that Jairus was even the ruler of the synagogues in that particular region around Capernaum on the northwest shores of the Sea of Galilee. And so this is not just another guy here. This is a ruler of the synagogue, maybe the ruler. He's a distinguished man in the community. He's a leader who is most likely well-known and respected. He's known by the religious leaders and the common people. He's known. 
He's a prominent man of a prominent status. So he's a very unlikely seeker of Christ when you think about some of the individuals that we've already seen. But this man comes to Jesus. Notice in humble desperation, for tragedy has struck his family, right? Tragedy has struck his family. Look at verse 23. Jairus was imploring him continually. Well, he was imploring him earnestly. He was begging Jesus continually, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. I assume that most of us, if our little child was in such a condition that we would be pleading with Jesus like this, right? That we would believe that he, was, he would actually be able to heal our little daughter. We would be pleading earnestly this way. So take note. This is a prosperous man with the posture of a beggar. A prosperous man with the posture of a beggar. Who knows what Jairus' attitude had been towards Jesus prior to this? Who knows? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Friendly or hostile. But one thing he knows, he's heard of Jesus' power over illness. He's heard of Jesus' power over demons. Maybe of his healing of, of, of demons, his, his healing of other people like paralytics and lepers. He's heard Jesus' reputation and he knows he has a need and he comes desperately in humility looking for Jesus to help him. J.C. Ryle writes this, Let us be reminded that death comes to halls and palaces as well as to cottages, to landlords and to tenants, to the rich and to the poor. It stands on no ceremony, waits for no one. Sickness is a great leveler. It touches all humanity, end quote. Isn't that a fact? That we are all touched by the brokenness of humanity, right? Eventually, just give it time, if you haven't experienced already, and hurt will come to your life. Amen? Hurt will come to you. And so his social status meant nothing here. Here is a man who has everything, possessions, popularity, notoriety, all of that, but he's being impacted very directly by the reality of the world's brokenness. Beloved, he wasn't exempt, no matter how visibly externally prosperous he might have been. And so he's desperate here. He's a desperate parent. I witnessed this degree of parental desperation a few years ago when a 10-year-old little daughter of friends of ours, good friends of ours, began to die. She was very healthy, and we even had a couple of play dates with this little girl who was 10 years old. Eventually, she got worse and worse and worse. Within two to three months, she contracted terminal illness, and she passed away. And we saw our friends who trusted in the Lord through that. They were an amazing testimony of trust in the Lord. But we witnessed as a family the intense grief and the utter helplessness that they went through as parents. They couldn't help their little girl. It was a very, very hard time. You can imagine then the same degree of desperation from Jairus, who, full of emotion, pleading with Jesus, crying with a choking voice, pleading with the only one who can help him, Lord, please help my daughter. And have you noticed that whenever people come in desperation like this, does Jesus respond? Yes, he does. He does. Jesus helps people who come to him, beloved, recognizing their desperate need for him alone. He helps people like that. 
Now, this is where the deception of the world comes in, doesn't it? Where we are told continually by the world around us that we need health, good health, that we need stuff, that we need more materialism, that we need more possessions, that we need more friends, the right kinds of people, the right kinds of connections, that we need better circumstances, that we need a trouble-free life, that we need pleasure as we define it and happiness as we define it. And none of these things are evil in themselves. The problem is when we elevate those things above our need for who? For Christ. For Christ. Well, this man has come to the end of himself. He's come to the end of himself. And like Jairus, listen, God will do something in each of our lives at one point or another if he hasn't done it already. He will bring you and I to the point of brokenness, of removing the luster of those things that we think are our greatest need, won't He? To bring us to the end of ourselves. To realize that we don't need those things. That who we need is Christ. God will bring every circumstance, beloved, to get us to the point where we come like a gyrus. Spiritually speaking, to say, God, I am, I've come to the end of myself to see the vanity of all of my pursuits. I need you. Here are my empty hands of faith. Please save me. Please save me. We need to learn from Jairus, beloved. We need to learn from Jairus, a man who is displaying the seeds of simple faith. He doesn't fully understand all about Jesus and all the theological matters, but he knows he can't do this by himself, but he's coming to one whom he knows, Jesus Christ, who can, right? Who can. And our Lord, notice in verse 24, is never one to turn people back. It says in verse 24, And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. There's no verbal response by Jesus recorded in verse 24, only that he heads out to Jairus' home, being followed by the suffocating crowds, cramming into Jesus, expecting yet another miracle. They're, they're making haste, trying to get to Jairus' house, but he can hardly even walk. Picture that. He can hardly even move, make any progress towards Jairus' house. Meanwhile, there's an interruption, at least from the reader's perspective, though never from the perspective of Christ, who is sovereignly ordaining all of this. So we've seen the Jesus and the desperate. Secondly, we see in verses 25 through 34, Jesus and the disheartened. Jesus and the disheartened. Suddenly, suddenly, a woman appears on the scene. Notice in verse 25, she's a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. No name is given. No name is given. But notice her horrifying, hopeless condition. She has a hopeless condition. So impactful was this account as, as Peter was relating this to, to Mark, that Mark uses one long sentence in verses 25 through 27. Seven participial clauses here to describe her condition or her plight. It's the longest sentence, verses 25 through 27, in the Gospel of Mark. That's how you write or speak. You, you run on with your words, right? Or, or write run-on sentences when you're so impacted by a particular situation. As Peter is describing this to Mark, Mark is writing about her, her hopeless condition. The text doesn't tell us the specifics about her diagnosis. But most credible people think that this was probably a chronic urine hemorrhage caused by some kind of an infection, causing internal bleeding, perhaps in the kidneys or another internal organ. 
Listen, this woman had a serious bleeding problem. And this had been going on for 12 years of her life. 12 years. She was in a hopeless condition, hopeless predicament. And it wasn't like she hadn't sought help. Look at verse 26. And had endured, this woman had endured much at the hands of many physicians, numerous doctors, many doctors had tried to help her. Different treatments have been tried upon her. In desperation, she had spent all that she had in verse 26, all of her fortune, sparing no expense, but to no avail. She was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Luke 8, 43, the parallel account tells us that no doctor had been able to heal her. Luke, being a physician himself, says it was untreatable. It was incurable. She tried many doctors, but no one was able to to help her. Imagine how demoralizing this woman must feel. How disheartening her situation. In addition to doctors, maybe she even tried what was prescribed by Jewish tradition for people in her condition. There were all kinds of weird, superstitious, so-called treatments that the Jews believed in. One person has written this, quote, The prescription for a woman who had this problem, according to Jewish tradition, was to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a cotton bag in the winter. In the world will that accomplish? Or carry a barley corn found in donkey dung or drink wine with alum and crocus. Alum being a colorless astringent and crocus is being a sp- some kind of spring, f- spring flowery plant with some medicinal um, uh, power. Or to drink wine with onions. I mean, there were all kinds of weird, silly kinds of prescriptions that the Jews of the day would, would recommend for somebody in this kind of situation. I mean, this woman, you can imagine, she probably tried all of those things. She was desperate. She was disheartened. She was disillusioned in her life. Imagine the social stigma as well. It was a hopeless condition. But imagine the social stigma connected to her hopeless condition. Think about this. According to Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 through 27, if a woman had a discharge not due to what's normal for a female, she was considered ceremonially unclean. Ceremonially unclean. This woman, in other words, for all intents and purposes, because she was considered ceremonially unclean, was a social outcast. I mean, if she touched anyone, they would be declared unclean too. So she couldn't have interaction, personal contact with anybody. Who knows if maybe her husband left her. If maybe she was ostracized from her family, certainly from society. She was a public shame and embarrassment. She was a social outcast. What a terrible social stigma. We've seen this again and again in Mark, haven't we? That people like this come to Christ like people who are lepers who are social outcasts as well, declared unclean from the society of that day. And yet people feel comfortable coming to Jesus because of their need, because they know He can help them. So she was in a hopeless condition. There was a social stigma connected to her. Also, think about her personal pain. Her personal pain. With this loss of blood regularly, she was always sickly, always weak, weepy, right? Emotional little energy, sluggish, and she had no relief, beloved. 
No relief. What personal pain this poor woman must have been going through. How disheartening. How disheartening. She had tried everything within her own resources to try to get this problem fixed. And she'd come to the end of herself like Jairus. But listen to me, like Jairus, this is exactly where Christ wanted her to be. To come to the end of herself and her own resources. And rather than looking for self-help solutions for other help from other people, including so-called experts or the world, this woman needed Jesus. She needed Christ. That's the point that Mark is making again and again and again through all of these circumstances. Now notice her powerful healing. Notice her powerful healing. Initially, she just comes to be physically healed, but she doesn't come to Jesus directly, does she? Notice verse 27. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. She comes from behind him incognito, secretly, wanting to be unnoticed. Why? Probably because of the social stigma connected to her, associated with her condition. And so she comes thinking that Jesus won't know, and she merely touches his outer garment, his cloak, ever so slightly. Now remember, she's unclean. So she's bumping into people, probably trying to get to Jesus prior to her touching um, uh, Christ. She is actually rubbing shoulders with other people who are around her, but does she care? No. She has her eyes fixed on Christ. Already we see the seeds of faith in this woman. Even if her faith, as we're going to see, is is incomplete and, and somewhat misguided, we're going to see that Jesus strengthens this woman's faith. But notice her faith. She simply wants to touch him. She reasoned, according to verse 28, that a slight touch, just a slight touch of his garment would heal her. And boy, was she right. Look at verse 29. Immediately, a favorite word for Mark, right? Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up like a fountain. It was dry, like a water fountain that was dried up. The flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Affliction there means, means pain, agony of her suffering. Wow. Wow. I hope that as you read through the Bible, you don't just pass over texts like these, as I am so prone to do, and just be like, oh, another miracle. Oh, my precious little Jesus. Wow. Christ yet again. I mean, if you were there and you had known about this woman for 12 years who had looked for all kinds of healing with all, looked used all her resources and her only hope was Jesus and Jesus did this, you would be astounded, wouldn't you? amazed upon touching Jesus's cloak. This woman is noticed instantly, completely and comprehensively inside and out healed of her hopeless condition. Wow. Yet again, what unrivaled power by Jesus. And Mark wants us to be astounded, to be amazed so that our, our faith would be strengthened and our love would be deepened for this Christ in whom we have believed, beloved. And that if you don't know Christ, that you would put your trust in this one who has power over anything and he can forgive you of anything. Now notice her public confession in verse 30. Immediately, that is at the precise moment she laid hands on him, immediately 
Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now, this is really key, really important, okay? Listen, where is Jesus right now? He's in the midst of what? A crowd? You think that this woman is the only one who is touching him? You think that this woman is the only one who is pulling on his garments? No. I mean, Jesus is jammed in, packed in like a sardine right now, isn't he? I mean, people are pulling at him and he's jammed in. He, they're, they're trying to, to bump into him. They're asking him for things. They're crying out his name. But it's, there's something about this woman in particular that got Jesus' attention. Something about her. And we're going to see what it was in a minute. Now, Jesus is not asking in verse 30, who touched my garments? Because he's asking for information that he doesn't know. He's asking a purposeful question. Listen, designed to draw this woman out from her public shame and confess publicly what has happened to her. First for herself but also for those who are watching, including who else, who is urgently wanting Jesus to rush over to heal his daughter, Jairus. Jairus is right there. And so Jairus is standing there watching this. Surely if Jesus can heal this woman, he can certainly heal his daughter, right? So this is also for those who are watching, including his inner three disciples who are going to go into the inner room in a few minutes to, to see him heal this young girl. Well, before she confesses, enter the clueless disciples yet again, right? And we all put ourselves in the shoes of these individuals because they just articulate what we're thinking. Notice verse 31. Before this poor lady has an opportunity to confess, his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you? In other words, hemming you in on both sides, cramming into you, and you say, who touched me? Luke 8.45 tells us that it was the infamous, guess who? Peter, who blurted out what the disciples were probably thinking. He was always a spokesman. So in a sarcastic, condescending way in addressing Jesus, he addresses Christ, reflecting what the other disciples were thinking. Here, again, is yet another example of their cluelessness. Especially Peter. Because Jesus knows who touched him. He knows it. We get this from verse 32. Notice verse 32. And he looked around. He scoped out the area to see the woman who had done this. Can you picture it? Jesus is looking out to the masses here. And he fixes his eyes on her. And she fixes his eyes on him. Their eyes connect. And she's like a deer in a headlight. She knows Jesus knows who she is and what she's done. He knew before that. Remember, Christ is sovereign over all of these things that are taking place here. This is, but this is amazing. There are masses. He can't even move. And yet he looks intently at the crowd, specifically picks out this woman from the masses. He did this deliberately, purposefully. How did he know? How did he know? What has Mark been emphasizing throughout the whole Gospel of Mark? He knows because he is God. He's God. So that you believe in him. So that you embrace him. So that you cherish and treasure him. He's God. That's how Jesus knows. 
And so she's caught, she's exposed, and the question is, what will this woman do? Is she going to try to run away from Christ? Trying to deny that it was her who did this? Oh, it's a lot of people around you, Jesus. It wasn't me. Come on. Be more specific. She's going to run away. She doesn't do that. Verse 33 tells us, but the woman, again, no name given, it's not important. Only her activity and what happens in her interaction with Christ. But the woman, verse 33, fearing and trembling. She was fearing and it led to her trembling response. This is not fear, beloved, of embarrassment. This is not fear of the crowds here. This is a, this is a who is this Jesus reverential fear. The kind of fear that the disciples um, um, showed toward Jesus back in chapter 4, verse 41, after witnessing Jesus' powerful calming of the storm, if you remember. It says in chapter 4, verse 41, that the disciples, in response to Jesus' powerful calming of the storm, became very much afraid. Very much afraid. They responded with reverential fear, noting that the least... Knowing that the least of their worries was a storm, right? This was God who was in the boat. Note how she reapproaches Jesus as she fears and comes trembling. Verse 33, she came and fell down before him. Don't ever underestimate um, descriptions like that. She worships Christ. She worships Christ. I mean, this would have been unthinkable for a Jew to do this. Only God, from the Jewish perspective, deserved worship like this. Why is she bowing down to one that she doesn't believe in? She bows to him in reverential fear. Furthermore, notice she told him the whole truth. The whole truth. And not only Jesus, but Luke 8, 47 says that she declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been made completely healed or immediately healed. She told her whole story, her disheartening condition, how she had tried everything, and most importantly, what Jesus did for her. She confessed Christ. She confessed Christ. Now, someone might ask, but did she get saved? Would you say that she she had saving faith? I mean, didn't many people get healed physically in that day and age, but they weren't they they, they didn't tr- believe in Jesus' claim so that they weren't saved from their sins? And the answer is absolutely yes. Many who were physically healed did not repent of their sins, turn from their sins and trust in Christ. But in the case of this woman, beloved, she was also spiritually healed. And the reason I can tell you this is because Jesus' words are the final verdict, right? Look at verse 34. And he, Jesus, said to her, notice what he calls her, daughter. Daughter. It's the only place where a woman is affectionately addressed like this. It is familial language, right? You are now part of the family. You are now part of the family, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you whole. That verb translated made you well there comes from the same Greek word sometimes translated to save. To save. Used when speaking of our salvation from our sins. This means that this woman, beloved, experienced not only physical healing, but Jesus delivered her from sin as well so that she was made whole again. Not only physically, 
but also spiritually. He tells her, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Go in peace, literally go into peace, which implies that she's at peace with God in addition to being physically healed. She's a daughter of the king. This woman who had come to him so disheartened, she has had her hope realized because of Christ. Realized because of Christ. Now, this is important here. There's something else. Because there was a lesson she needed to learn as well through this, right? I've been reading some material um, about the Protestant Reformation and events and movements, even within the Roman Catholic Church and the atrocities of the Roman Catholic Church leading to the Protestant Reformation. And one of the great things that I read recently was how certain relics, as many of you know, were um, began to kind of be elevated and certain objects were believed to have, even to in certain uh, circles of the Roman Catholic Church, healing power. Even saving some kind of salvific power. And these idols, these relics, were, were part of the battlefield for the reformers. To show the people that certain things can, 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 be, um, can represent wonderful aspects of the majesty of God. But they were not these relics to be worshipped. Or, to, or that we should trust in those relics as these idols that had some kind of healing or saving power. And people were treating some of these things that way. But the author goes on to talk about how even today, how might we apply that today? That even today, we have our form of relics. We watch these false teachers, these charlatans on national television, these so-called true evangelists, really thieves, wolves in sheep's clothing, who tell you that as long as you follow them, as long as you worship them, essentially, as long as you give money to them, then, hey, you can be saved. You can receive healing. Or they tell you, Send money for healing oil or buy the latest how-to book to fix your life, to be healed of your sicknesses or your diseases. If you just follow these five steps, then you will receive healing. Listen, none of those things, you know this, none of those things help you. None of those things bring salvation to your soul, right? None of those things do. It was the same for this woman, wasn't it? Think about this woman. Was it the garments that she touched that healed her? No. Everybody else was grabbing the garments. It was Christ. Christ saved this woman. See, it isn't, beloved, it isn't faith in and of itself. People talk today about, believe, believe. If you only believe, all of your, 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 your greatest desires will be fulfilled. If you only believe, it will happen. If you, if you have faith, it will take place. Isn't that the word of faith movement? If you believe it and you claim it, it'll happen. Does that, is that really true? Eh, no. It doesn't just happen. Faith in and of itself has no saving power. Do you understand? None. Such as the garments of Christ had no saving power if they were stripped from Jesus Christ. Even her faith was imperfect, deficient, perhaps a bit misguided. Beloved, it was the object of this woman's faith, namely Christ who healed her. Christ alone. Not any of those things. Christ delivered her from her terrible condition and the ultimate root problem of her condition, which was her sin. I love what Sinclair Ferguson writes, quote, That day she had discovered that none but Christ can satisfy. 
It was the greatest discovery of her life. She came for healing and found grace. Instead of shrinking away, she was called by Jesus to rejoice openly in God's grace. Oh, now, she was a testimony, a trophy of God's grace. And like the Gadarene demoniac, remember in our previous passage, now she needed to go out and tell of what God had done. And isn't that the story of our lives? That God saves us, beloved, so that we would tell of the wonders and the excellencies of Christ? That he touched our lives in a saving way? That he continues to uphold us in our ongoing process of becoming more and more like Christ, in our ongoing sanctification. He is the one that we need to be relying upon. He is the one that we need to be trusting on. He is the one that we need to continue to cling to. He is. What a powerful miracle for a woman who was disheartened by her sad condition. But now notice, the camera refocuses now on Jairus, right? Can you... Can you imagine what Jairus is feeling like this whole time? I mean, what's happening back home? His daughter is dying. She's at her last breath. She's on the verge of death. I mean, can you imagine the desperation? He wants Jesus to hurry. Jesus, can we get on with it? I mean, this lady has, has had this disease, this sickness for 12 years. She couldn't wait a little bit longer. My little girl is dying. Let's get out of here. I can imagine being a dad like that. Oh, Lord, I care about this lady, but more important is my daughter. Let's go. Darius must have experienced such frustration. Yet this is where he needed his faith strengthened as well. He was about to meet a Savior, listen, who was not bound or limited by time, was not surprised by circumstances, by changing circumstances. In fact, Jesus is sovereign and he has ordained all of these circumstances. And he is not indifferent to Jairus' human frailty. He's about to, he's about to, his view of Christ is about to heighten all the more and his faith strengthened. We've seen Jesus and the desperate, Jesus and the disheartened. Thirdly, we see Jesus and the deceased. Jesus and the deceased in verses 35 through 43. Jairus' worst nightmare is realized, right? The shocking news comes. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, namely Jairus, saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any more? Man, picture the emotion of the moment. Picture the shock of this man and the the feeling of utter anguish and utter despair. His worst fear had been realized. I recall coming home from work back in 2002. And my wife was waiting out in front of our apartment with our two little boys at the time. One baby and a toddler. And I knew that it was very uncommon for her to be waiting for me that way. And as soon as I got out of my car, I went to the front door and she said, Honey, come over to the living room, sit down. And she went on to tell me that my brother, who was in his early 20s at the time, had been murdered. And I remember the shock that I felt. I remember the utter sense of despair at that moment, the the anguish of hearing that my brother had died. Oh, can you imagine your little girl? Can you imagine your young child of 12 years old like Jairus and what he is feeling here? 
But listen, here was the ultimate test of Jairus' faith right here. Jairus had initially come because he believed that Jesus could heal his sick daughter. And now, in fact, he had witnessed him healing this woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 years. But could Jesus, who healed such people, now raise his daughter from the dead? Could he do that? She was now lifeless. His faith needed strengthening. You ever feel like that? I realize that this is a very unique situation that most of us will never experience, but isn't the principle kind of applicable to all of us? Do you ever feel like you're going through things in your life and things are, it's like an earthquake around you, everything's shaking, and you just seem like you're base, barely holding on by a thread. You're trusting that everything's going to be okay. You keep pleading before the Lord, and then things get worse. And then things get worse. What is God doing in those moments of life? He is, beloved, testing us so that we would ask ourselves, is this God as great as I profess Him to be? Strengthening our faith. He's strengthening our faith. Jesus knows that Jairus needs his faith strengthened. It's weak. Look at verse 36. But Jesus... Overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, he says to Jairus, the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. I love this. Two commands, two imperatives here that we can translate like this. Stop being afraid. Quit it. Quit it. Is death greater than me? Is death greater than Christ? And then the second one, and then keep on believing is the sense of that verb command. Keep on believing. See, Jairus needed his faith strengthened. And his faith would only be strengthened if he fixed his eyes on Jesus Christ. If he realized that Jesus, as Jesus is about to show him, is not bound or limited by time restrictions as human beings are. He is not surprised by changing circumstances. In fact, he sovereignly ordains them for his glory and for our good. And most importantly for Jairus, he's not indifferent to his human weakness. So he assures him. He assures him. Do not be afraid. Only believe. Verse 37. Let's see what happens. And he allowed no one to accompany him. This is Christ. Except Peter and James and John, his inner circle of three, the brother of James. Verse 38, they came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. The custom of the day was to, uh, in that day, in terms, in terms, uh, in terms of honoring the, the dead and your family members, was to, was to hire professional mourners to come and honor that person. So picture a house full of these professional weeping mourners, family members, extended family, friends of the family, maybe even neighbors, all grieving. Everybody's weeping and there's instruments playing and all of that. Verse 39, And entering in, Christ said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, verse 40. Luke 8, 40, 53 says that they began laughing at him. Listen to this. Knowing that she had died. And that's important because certain skeptics of Scripture, um, 
deny the fact that she was truly dead. Luke 8.53 explicitly says that they began laughing at him, knowing, being convinced that she had died. She was dead. And they were right. They were right. To human beings without Christ, that moment of death is one of despair and hopelessness. That is the end, isn't it? The end. But Christ is able to raise the dead. And that's the point here. The stage is set. Jesus and his inner circle of three disciples, the girl's father and mother, enter this private inner room. Jesus, verse 40, puts everybody else out. He takes along the child's father and mother and his own companions, the inner three disciples, and enters the room where the child was. Why did he do this? He doesn't want to bring added and misguided attention from the fickle crowds, right? Over and over again, we've seen in the Gospel of Mark that people witnessing miracles doesn't lead to saving faith necessarily. So Christ doesn't want any more fickle crowds around this situation. But I submit to you this. More important, this is a faith-strengthening lesson for Jairus, for Jairus' wife and his three disciples. Verse 41. Taking the child by the hand, This would have been considered ceremonially unclean, that Jesus is touching a dead person. But Jesus doesn't care about that, right? He always shares in people's uncleanness that he might save them from their diseases. He's going to do that at the cross, isn't he? That is the ultimate manifestation of that. Jesus will go to the cross later on and share in our iniquities, being blameless himself, but our sins will be placed upon him who is clean, our uncleanness placed upon him that he might save us. What a picture. What a picture. He did that even in physical healings. Now how vivid this account was to Peter as he's telling Mark, and Mark is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit and recording these words. Peter even remembered Jesus' words. Notice verse 41. Jesus said to her, Talitha, come. Talitha, come. It's Aramaic. It means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Get up. Oh, how tenderly Jesus addresses her, but, but with what authority he summons this little girl, beloved, notice, to arise, to awake. I love this quote. Jesus' authority, tough with wild winds, storms, and raging demons, becomes as tender as a shepherd lifting the littlest of lambs, end quote. Jesus' authority at work here. And as we would expect, she's healed. Verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. Mark loves this word, immediately. Without a struggle to overcome death. She didn't get up coughing and doing all of that. This little girl got up, started to walk around, almost as if she hadn't been sick at all. No recovery period. I mean, can you imagine her mama? Honey, honey, be careful. You're going to pass out. You haven't been walking around. Take your time. Ease into this a little bit. You've had a rough day. She's okay. It's okay because Christ heals definitively, doesn't he? Completely. Inside and out. There's no recovery period with our Lord's miracles. And notice the response of everyone. I love this in verse 42. Notice, and immediately they were completely astounded. I love that. Would you write a sentence like that? And immediately they were completely astounded. Strong language. Right away they were greatly astonished. They were amazed. 
to three disciples, the girl's mother and father were like, wow, amazing, astounding. Probably said what the disciples said. Who is this that even raises people from the dead? Who can do this? Verse 43, and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. Obviously, this miracle would get around, but what Jesus doesn't want is premature publicity to the fickle crowds. And then don't miss this in verse 43. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Don't pass over that. The more I read through the Gospels and the more that we study the Gospel of Mark, the more I'm, I'm just astounded, amazed by how much I used to miss. Here is Jesus Mighty Jesus, unrivaled in power, the God-man raising people from the dead. And then, at the end of verse 43, he's making sure that this little girl gets something to eat. She's almost a teen, so teens need to eat, right? (laughs) Get this girl something to eat. She's running around, using energy. Our Creator cares about all of us, doesn't He? He created every aspect of us, physical and spiritual. In fact, one day, beloved, because of of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we will all be raised and we will all be made whole and complete. And so Jesus shows his care even to her physically. Physically. What great miracle. What great miracle here. That became such a testimony to Jairus, who came with, with the seeds of faith, not knowing all of the answers. Not knowing perhaps the fullness of Jesus' claims. But by the end of the time, we're not told this explicitly. But I think Jairus trusted in Christ. He trusted in Christ. Keep on believing. He already had the seeds of faith. And he gets to see the greatness of Christ at work in raising this young girl, his daughter, from the dead. What about us? What do we glean from this account and others? I think for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who have committed our lives to Christ, who have repented of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, beloved, may our faith be strengthened all the more in the Savior. All the more. Listen, there is nothing that you're going through in your life right now, personally, in your struggles against sin, in your marriage, as a single individual, There's nothing that you're going through in your job situation. Nothing that you're going through in any type of relationship in your neighborhood. There's no trial, even physical health trials that you're going through, that Jesus doesn't understand and that he doesn't have power over. And so if he has allowed you to remain in that condition, he has greater lessons through your suffering that he's trying to teach you. Jesus doesn't promise healing in every situation, does he? He didn't heal everybody in the Gospels. He doesn't heal his people, his followers. He has greater purpose for us, that we would glorify him by living well under our suffering and that we would become more and more like him, like Christ. That is the ultimate purpose of our suffering. So we need to learn to live well under our suffering. But be reminded, and may your faith be strengthened. And the fact that Christ has power over all of these things. Christ has power over whatever sins you are struggling with in your life. Do you understand that? He who has the power to save you and deliver you from the penalty of your sin, He has the power by His Spirit to deliver you from the power of your sin. But you need to go to Him. You need to cling to Christ. And part of what He's given us 
is his church, other people to whom we need to be accountable and confess our sins to one another and help one another, encourage one another in Christ. We need to go to him, beloved. So may our faith be strengthened, but also our love should be deepened. We love Christ because he first loved us, right? He loves us. He is for us who have trusted in him. He loves us, beloved, and he's concerned about all aspects of our lives, physical and spiritual. He cares for you and I. May your love for him in response to his love be deepened so that you walk closer in intimacy with Jesus Christ. And finally, I would say this, as we look upon this passage and all these accounts in the Gospel of Mark, for those of you who have not committed your life to Christ, you need to realize that the one who has power to cast out demons, heal sicknesses and diseases and calm storms is powerful no matter what you've done in your life, no matter how great of a sinner you are, he can save you. He can forgive you. He can reconcile you to God. He can do that. But you must see your sin. You must see yourself as a sinner who is in desperate need of Christ. Confess your sin. You must desire to forsake your sin and put your trust in Jesus alone. The one who paid for sins, who took upon our, the punishment for our sins upon himself and lives to save sinners like you and I. I pray that you would give your life to Christ today. I pray that you would not continue to put him off. I pray that you would not continue to see these beautiful portraits of Jesus Christ and just be indifferent, be complacent. Turn your back on your maker and your creator. Continue to live in rebellion and self-idolatry. I pray that you would bow the knee to him because, listen, everybody will bow the knee to Christ, whether in worship or one day in judgment, right? Which one do you want to be? I would rather be the first. I want to bow the knee to King Jesus because he's worthy. He created me to worship him now and not in the future in judgment where I will spend the rest of my eternity separated from my creator. There are consequences for our rejection of Christ. I pray that you would trust in him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the fact that you love us, that you want our faith as your children to be strengthened as we look at these portraits of the majesty and the unrivaled power of Christ. Oh, Lord, help us to remember that even in our sanctification, the ongoing process of becoming more like Christ, we need to cling to Christ. We need to be those who are dependent upon Christ. Lord, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who has not trusted in you, who is living for themselves and they know it from their hearts. Oh, Lord, I pray that today would be the day where they would submit their lives to you, where they would commit to following you for the rest of their life, the day where they would count the passing pleasures of this world as not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us in Christ in the future. Lord, do this amongst us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.